This is Jan Cox, talk number 2,552, recorded July 19th, 2000. I was going to. I thought of some more things to say about what I was talking about last time, about the model of the high end of our nervous system being the mammalian brain, which is what it amounts to when you've got a cortex, built on top of the reptilian brain. And... Although, to break down anything into twos, threes, or into any parts is an error. Because, as we all know, the entire organism of us and the entire organism of the universe, or you should know it by now, is inseparably connected. But especially the brain. And in spite of that, though, as I was saying last time, and I thought of a few more things that... I found of practical use. I assume you can figure it out for yourself if you listen. If you look at the brain stem going up, you don't have to know anatomy, but as I said, it was considered for a while, it was just referred to as the brain stem up to that point as the reptilian brain. Of course, again, we're talking about the entire nervous system going up the spinal cord. But into the brain stem and up to the point of really the thalamus, the diencephalon area. But it was from that, the old idea, or an idea at one time of the reptilian brain, and its largest part is the olfactory lobes that you can see pictures from lizards and small caiman. And where our cortex, that is where we have the two big hemispheres, they have two big lobes, but it's the olfactory senses. It's smell. And based upon the observation as a claim of the development of the embryo, the human embryo, there's no doubt, they say, that our hemispheres, the cerebral cortex, grows out of, if we had stopped in our embryonic development, at that level we would have simply a reptilian brain, but where the olfactory lobes are, in a sense, turn inside out, and the cells come to the surface, they expand, turns into gray matter, and that's the mammalian brain. It's the cortex. And even though they are inseparably, obviously connected, there is enough observable, useful ways to think about them being discreetly apart to make it, I think, worthwhile talking about at least one more night. As I mentioned, it's happened before that the mammalian part of the brain, the cortex, can be damaged severely. In fact, theoretically, I suppose it could be detached. It could be cut. And as far as I know, you would still live because the reptilian part of the brain takes care of all the instincts. I don't know whether you'd have any trouble swallowing but the respiration, your endocrine system, everything would be operated, still blood pressure and everything else, by the reptilian brain, just the brain stem. Whereas just slight damage to the brain stem can prove to be fatal. Just slight damage. Whereas, as you should know, all kinds of damage can be sustained by the cortex. And they've discovered it can even shift around duties. And... Uh, 
certain faculties that you may lose through head trauma in the cortex, months later, even years later, another part of the brain will finally pick up and you haven't really turned out ultimately to a sustained permanent damage. So there's ways to look at it of them being discreet. That is the brain stem, the reptilian brain being in charge of instinct. Might as well just call it what it is. And then the mammalian part, the cortex, being in charge of thinking. And as I was pointing out the last time, there was a little bit of something got me going back in the 50s. I said that hit me all at once one time while reading through a book. That the cortex, if you looked at an imaginary history, a real quick evolution, you could see that the usefulness of the cortex to get up to the point that it is now that we can think abstractly and that we have developed technology, that we can perform surgeries, do what amounts to medical miracles, perform operations, procedures on illnesses that two decades ago or maybe even a year ago, you know how fast things go, were, was proving fatal. And they can do all sorts of things now thanks solely, not to the brainstem. Our reptilian brain only reacts to the environment. It is absolutely automatic. There's no doubt about that. Or if there is, you know what I mean. There's no doubt that reptiles, and to varying degrees as you even keep going up to the mammalian brain, but at least reptiles having the same brain up to the point of the brainstem, up to the cortex as we do, they have no choice. They make no selection. Everything they do is absolutely automatic. They're either doing nothing, as far as you can see, or else they are responding automatically, instinctively, to some stimuli in the environment, or they are reacting to some hormonal stimuli in themselves. They're reacting to hunger in themselves, or they're reacting to sexual urges, or they're reacting to the need to find warmth, to raise their body temperature to get going for the day, or conversely to cool off, but they are simply reacting. So we have this going on in us. And it's the point that no one thinks about it in discrete terms. There's no need to, obviously, with ordinary people. But I have found it useful. And I was doing it again today in anticipation of talking to you. Absolutely doing it while out driving the car. I'll get to it in a minute. I hope to describe it to you a little bit better. I'll, right now, i just say I was thinking about it. The difference between instinct in me, not theoretically, but what would be the difference? Could I feel it? Is it there of being able to operate just by instinct or being able to operate, as far as you can tell, just by thinking? Or at least the thinking be playing the major part of the time. To ask yourself right now, what am I doing? Am I operating, if there was a, a switch between the reptilian brain and my mammalian cortex, and I could switch one on and the other off or switch them both on. Right now, what I'm doing, could I switch off one or the other and still be operating constructively as efficiently as I am without the other one shut off? Could I right now shut off, if I had a switch, and just go click and shut off my cortex, whatever it is I'm doing at this moment, could I do it just as well? Or... Could I shut off my instinct if it was possible and not interfere with my bodily functions? Could I cut off instinct and right now be doing whatever I'm doing only on the basis of thought, consciousness, 
in the cortex and be doing it about as well as I am with everything working. Now, even though you cannot separate them, really, like I said, unless it was under some artificial condition, like to surgically cut them loose or you suffered some trauma, under ordinary conditions, it's the same as the blood circulation, let's say. It's, it's feeding the brain stem, it's feeding also the cortex. You can't, it's not one or the other. Everything's connected, being the point. And yet something came to my mind. Now, I don't know why, maybe you'll, but an example of which all of you should have some familiarity, if not in the first person actively, at least in the second person passively. Alcohol. The consumption of alcohol, as everyone should be aware, affects all parts of the brain. You have a few drinks and already your equilibrium will be affected. Your speech will become affected. What I'm saying is, Already the brainstem, the reptilian brain, and the mammalian brain, the cortex, both will be affected very shortly because alcohol is in the blood and the blood is going to all parts of the brain. But you either should know through your first person experience or through second person observation this. A person can drink enough and, so to speak, become another person. Uh, if I assume, of course, it happens to you. Normally what happens is when you sober up, you don't even remember the episode because of the point the cortex, the conscious part of the brain, got so overwhelmed by alcohol that there is, in fact, I've read they finally tracked it down to a certain uh, chemical whose name I can't remember, that it finally becomes, in essence, I think, dehydrated out of you out of the brain, and that's what cuts short-term memory off. But that wasn't even the point. The point is, you become another person. I'll put that in quotation marks. And like I said, if it happens to you personally, to the extent that I say, then you don't really remember it. So let's go into second person, observation of it. I assume that most of you men have seen it in person. Well, probably all you women see it in person. You must think about it. But if not, you have seen it depicted in movies and fiction. And it goes like this. See, there are two lovers. But I, to me, I can make it better if you find because when you're talking about lovers, you've got sex in there. How about two friends? How about two brothers even? And one of them gets real drunk and to the point, I mean, you know, we're talking about serious drunk. He's already the point that he, uh, his motor skills and everything is seriously affected. And yet he's still talking. But we're talking about drunk on the verge of passing out. You know, speech slurred, eyes almost closed. But the guy's still talking. If you want to call it that. Normally it turns into some sort of rant. But let's say two close brothers. They're about drinking. One suddenly turns on the other. And he's another person. Verbally. He begins to verbally assault his brother. Begins to say things like, You sorry son of a bitch, you don't know. I mean, here it is we've been living next door to each other most of our life, and you don't know it, but I have hated your guts. I've been wanting to kill you for the last 35 years. And if you knew them both, it is absolutely without any basis. Now, you can't go by fictional psychological 
interpretations because we know in the movies and in fiction they would then say it was some sort of subconscious uh, hatred that one brother had for the other and finally just under the influence of alcohol his uh, inhibitions were lowered and it came out. I don't want to waste too much more time with this. Does everybody understand what I'm trying to say? I'm trying to say that if you hadn't observed it, it could have happened to you personally. Maybe you had a close friend. And if you've ever been around drink, drinkers and you didn't get that drunk, you let it go. You're aware of what it was that this guy, your best friend, can get drunk and just out of the clear blue sky. You're not drinking all night and he's just about to pass out and you're coming home. I said, you're going to take him home looking after him, and he finally suddenly turns on you, and he's like another person. And he may say things like, you know, boy, I hate you. I hope I never see you again. And if you've got any experience with drinking, and somebody's that drunk, and assuming you've got any intelligence, you just simply ignore it. You know, I don't know how you would have described it to yourself, you simply know, well, this is not you. You're just damn drunk. I mean, you're seriously drunk. The cortex, and again, I'm being artificial in my description. But what it amounts to is the cortex has literally, almost, before your very eyes, not just mystically, but has, quote, gone to sleep. It has passed out. I still have, even to myself, a certain difficulty verbally describing how it passes out. And now the reptilian brain continues to operate your tongue. That's one I have yet to... My inspirational flash is, that I depend on has yet to hit me with that one. Because it doesn't really make sense. But what it amounts to, if you've seen it in person, it's almost as though, literally, that the person, even though their eyes may be half open, it's almost as though the person has literally passed out. Somebody asleep. If you've ever seen a drunk asleep, or some people do it without alcohol, but especially if somebody's real drunk and they passed out, maybe you go in to look at them later and you walk over the bed or touch them or they suddenly realize somebody's in the room and they begin to talk. And you can go, that's just me, I was checking on you. And he suddenly starts talking to them. Well, uh, Marilyn, I told you that I'm through with you. You go, I'm not Marilyn. You know, it's me. It's your brother Bob. He said, get the hell away from me, you and your horsey. I'm not going back home and tell Mama I'm not coming home ever again and tell Marilyn, nah, forget it. In other words, the person laying there and they believe they're talking to somebody, but you realize they are asleep. Right? Even a drunk still around, if you can sit in a certain way, the cortex, since we use this term, mystics have now for five or 6,000 years, it just hit me because I loved it when I saw it that way and understood it. You can sit right there over a period of an hour or so or maybe a three or four hours, and this person you know get drunk, and their cortex, which is the only place that personality, as we call it, lives. Well, yeah, well, your temperament lives down the brainstem, but what people normally call personality is like this person that you know, they disappear. They take a nap, and it's as though a demon, some reptile that can talk, some foreigner, a brand new person suddenly begins to talk for them. They turn you and go, you know something I never told you? You go, what? Here it is, your best friend since childhood, and he says, I hate your guts. I've been wanting to kill you all, you know, for the last 40 years. You know, what the hell does that mean? 
the cortex, the mammalian brain, that which makes us human, went to sleep before your very eyes. The, the whole person didn't go to sleep. The thing that mystics talk about, that we're in a state of sleep. If you could stay sober enough and would put up with it, being around somebody and let them get that drunk, you have watched, in the mystical sense, you have watched somebody's cortex, which is the only place any of us are asleep or in captivity. The thing has gone to sleep, in a sense physically, right? Opened observation. Because what is talking is not that person's cortex. The idea, well, it's some kind of subconscious you know, ideas and feelings that the person had that just never came out. That's accepted as truth nowadays. But does anybody know that that's not true? There could be some kind of hostility. But I'm saying two people that are just perfect friends. Nothing's ever gone on. As I said, I've seen it happen with brothers. There was no excuse. It meant nothing. Because it was not the person's cortex, it was not the part of the brain in charge of talking. The part that is responsible for human emotion, not instinctive passion, but of human emotion, that thing was not even present. It was literally passed out, even though the human was still talking. Even though that person, the part in charge of talking and thinking and engaging in human feeling, was literally passed out. And yet, the thing still talked. And all you were getting, instead of sounds that alligators make, instead of hissing of a snake or a lizard, you got that shit. Something that just meant nothing. Something that was completely irrational. The view, the attitude of the cortex... And that of the brain stem, the reptilian brain, has got to be. Again, remember, we're speaking somewhat artificially for me to separate them like this. But they are speaking two different languages. They have two different worlds of interest. In fact, what's called normally psychosomatic illness, without any doubt, assuming there is such a thing, which, you know, there's some basis for it, that they can't. A person suffering from all kinds of symptoms, and they can find no physiological reason for it. And perhaps the doctor, if he takes enough interest to ask enough questions, he may decide, well, it's the stress of your job. So let's assume that such as that happens. Then it does not take any effort, as far as I'm concerned, to picture this in a certain way. That you have... You've got to remember, as I used to call it, we are living, people like us, more and more in a, an invented world. My secondary reality, my secondary world. And it is, in a sense, it, well, it, it really is artificial. But for those of you, artificial, in my opinion, is taking on a connotation that denotes a quality. Whereas artificial does not offer a judgment on quality. Artificial means man-made. But that's it. It doesn't mean inferior. In fact, I've seen recent dictionaries that went to the point down in the feet notes where they list synonyms to go to the trouble to mention the word ersatz 
to distinguish a word that meant not only man-made, but a, an inferior copy. But to say something's artificial, there is no definition, there is none to denote inequality, just it's an imitation. So, obviously, my secondary reality is artificial. The whole world of society, civilization, culture, is in a sense foreign to the reptilian brain. The instinctive reptilian brain is in charge of simply the physical actions and reactions necessary for survival. So the idea that stress or psychosomatic illness is a reality. Imagine, I got something out of it, so imagine. What if the reptilian brain on its own could be conscious? What if it has some awareness of what's going on? And look at our day and time, the life that you people lead, that we lead. How close does the reptilian brain ever get to conditions when it and the conditions are face to face, that there is a direct confrontation? I'll put it to you another way. How about this? I used to use this in a slightly different way. Uh, if we could find people on this planet right now who, I guess there are a few, maybe down the rainforest of Brazil or some remote islands in the Pacific, and we found people that, I guess we could. I was going to think, hell, probably missionaries have shown up and give them satellite dishes by now. But to find people down the rainforest that do not have satellite dishes. Let's say that. If we plucked them out of the forest right now and brought them to a major western city, dropped them in downtown Boston, think what a sight that would be. Some, some guy right out of the rainforest with a grass skirt or naked, a blowgun, a spear, and we just sit him down right in the middle of downtown Boston and look how ridiculous. Look how confused. Imagine. Then imagine we take someone from Harvard, someone with an, several degrees, a leading expert in some field of the arts or even sciences, and we dropped him suddenly into the rainforest deep in Brazil. Who would be worse off? Now, if you were just looking, certainly you could look at that poor Indian from the rainforest in Brazil, and just suddenly you dropped him. Imagine downtown Manhattan. What could he do? What would he make of it? But also, we look at now, here is a man who in his home territory back at Harvard, he's the head of the philosophy department. Distinguished professor, a chair has been named after him. And suddenly we see him standing there in the remote, thousands of miles from another human, in the rainforest of Brazil, and think how stupid and confused and helpless he would look. You know, the idea that we are more intelligent, say, than an Indian, or more primitive, and more a less civilized person, the idea that we are more intelligent, you know, I don't think is supportable. Because given the conditions, the Indian down the rainforest, 
he handles with his intelligence, with his mammalian brain, in conjunction with the reptilian brain, but he is conscious, he has a cortex, but he handles, his cortex and his reptilian brain together, handle life in the rainforest for the engine quite adequately. Certainly better at this moment than our Harvard professor staying there suddenly, what the hell am I doing, you know, what do I do? But back in the circumstances of academia, then the professor, of course, his brain operates quite efficiently. It's a matter of where you are and what the brain is up to. Now the thing is, even as I said, I bet we'd be hard-pressed to find many people now that has, have not seen satellite television. I just wonder if there's anybody on this planet, maybe a few, that at least, even if I'm still sure that they must be a little bewildered, but at least if they have sitting there in the rainforest on their little shack and they've got a damn dish up there. You know, some guy came through and wanted the, the right to cut down some of the trees without getting shot at. And so, you know, he brings them wristwatches. That used to work, I think. But now it's probably satellite dishes. I'll bet you money. Because that'll really keep him out of his hair. Then everybody sits down and stares at that son of a bitch. Everybody goes crazy. When the neurons of their cortex gets exposed to the electronic movements of that Raytheon tube. And so I'm sure now the first thing they do is bring those little satellite antennas of dishes and a set. You know, instead of waving around jewelry and watches and radios, say, here, can we go back there and cut down all the trees we want back there if we let you have this? And they go, what is it? And they, you know, hook it up. And there, you know, rugby games, soap operas. And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they sit down. That's got to be the gift going now because keep them out of their hair. They're not going to come out there and start nosing around and shooting darts at them. They're going to get stuck there watching the set. So at any rate, I doubt that there's anybody who has not at least a theoretical knowledge of what the world is. But, even that being so, I say to you that, that even though humanity now more and more that we're living in an artificial world, I remind you again, it does not mean an inferior world we're not living in a direct, living in Harvard, your brainstem, the Harvard professor, assuming he stays out of the rougher part of town, your brainstem, the reptilian brain, is not faced with threats on its life. How often are you threatened? Except for you guys to get drunk and go down there and hang around Joe's black and blue room on Saturday. How often are you threatened? Never. How often do you feel threatened? Never. How often are most of you desperate for sex, enough to go out and fight another moose for it? That's what marriage is for. Most of you are married or got girlfriends. How many of you have the brainstem stirred up by fear that you're going to starve to death in the morning? It's the first thing you wake up. You think, I've got to run for it before something eats me, before the... A bigger animal comes up and gets, you know, uses me for breakfast. Plus, I got to get going. I'm starving to death. In one real sense, our brainstem, the reptilian brain, our instinctive brain, if you want it that way, has very little in the way of a direct need or pressure put on it. Where, do pressure, where does the pressure come from nowadays? 
I say it comes from the artificial world, from the secondary world. Because if you look at the cortex, as I was saying last time, that it operated as a screening device. That in one sense, you could, or from one view, you can say that that's what made human progress possible, was it began to screen out with mammals. It began to screen out old instinctive reactions, reptilian kinds of just automatic reactions that were unnecessary. That once you got up on land, once so many of the, if you go by the general evolutionary theory scheme, many of our ancestors went up into the trees, the monkeys. And so you had a complete different environment than the reptiles did originally that were living in water to get up on the land and to get up into trees. And there are all kinds of automatic reactions still inherent in the reptilian, the instinctive brain. And that the cortex, as it grew, it began to screen out the unnecessary ones. So that you had more time. You began to have choices. Anyway, I drew that out for you last time. Without any doubt, to take that view, you can see it as being a direct route. A necessary way, or a good explanation, a useful one, about how the brain grew and how man changed. And as the cortex is now still operates as a screening device. But if you look back at that kind of evolutionary theory, that kind of picture, its original screening had to do with biological, matters biological. Whereas the screening now, I say, has to do with things cultural. The secondary world. It was, in the beginning, it was the cortex was screening, analyzing, and picking and choosing on the basis of biological needs at the time. But what do we do now? I say that there's almost, look for yourself, that there's almost no call for, no need to be screening out any sort of biological urges, instinctive urges. The screening is going on on the basis of, of cultural, the expectations of secondary, the secondary world. The stress comes, I would say, if that kind of stress that they speak about the cause of psychosomatic illness, that the stress would come not from the repression of sex, let's say. But now you're repressing sex not for biological reasons, but you're doing it for cultural reasons because you realize, well, I cannot try and jump on every woman I see. It's against the law. It's against morality. No one would associate with me. I simply can't do it. But there's no biological need. You can change your eating habits. But there's no biological need. If you change them nowadays, it's probably you say, well, I joined some new cult and we only eat raisin toast. The pressures do not come from any instinctive need. They come from cultural, from secondary needs. So if the cortex is repressing sex, repressing anger. How about you got a job that you hate? You need the money. Maybe you hate the boss. Maybe you hate whoever's a supervisor. But you can't say anything. You need the job. You can't get another job. So it turns out there's no way to express it. 
and you're hating it by the, from the cortex. The reptilian brain, the instinctive brain is not hating it. You're not doing anything there at the job to make the instinctive brain have a negative reaction to it. You're not doing anything that's harming you physically. It's not stressful physically. You just hate it mentally. You dislike it nonetheless, even though it's mental, even though you could say it's cultural. You're suppressing sex, not because it would be biologically to your benefit not to get entangled in sex at this moment. You're doing it because you don't feel like you can get by with it because of cultural pressures. The only point to all of this, believe it or not, that I was saying is imagine, if you can find your own picture of it, that you're doing things, all of us, our humanity in general, and now I say it just about encompasses everyone on this planet, you are censoring, screening out, repressing urges, interests you have, but you're doing it for cultural reasons. The cortex is doing it for cortical reasons, doing it for mental reasons. There's no physical reason to be doing this. You've got no physical reason to hate your job. You just hate it. It's boring. Or it could be that you do hate the boss. The job might not be that big a deal. But you hate the boss. And if you can't say anything, there's no way around it, what happens? You begin to get sick. You begin to get headaches, maybe. And you begin to maybe say, I can't stand this job. And your wife or somebody says, well, I thought you loved the job. And you say, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Just the pressure. It's getting, I don't know what it is. And in a sense, the brainstem doesn't know what it is. But it's getting pressured. And nobody knows what it is. It's the, an idea that's not that new, and it's certainly not original when I put it in this sense, that I told you it was a big book and there was a lot of interest back in the 50s, a book called Man Against Himself. But even the Greeks, there's plenty of writings back in pre-Confucian time. They still find writings. But the idea that men are prone to get entangled in an internal turmoil wherein at times they can operate in their own worst interest. But there is a way that I was describing which you could actually see, and I say it's supportable, that continually, the more we're living in an artificial world, the more that we are dealing in artifacts. You know, how many of us are growing food but with our own hands, drawing our own water, building our own house? Almost everything we touch, look at, and smell is man-made. Nothing wrong with it. Again, I repeat, artificial is not a judgment. But it means it is things, my secondary world, as I pointed out, the reason I came up with the term, it's a total invention. And so the brainstem, the instinctive mind, has very little direct contact, if you can follow what I mean, with the natural world anymore. Because we have very little connection. It's like we're living in an artificial world. One more time, that is not a judgment. There's nothing wrong with it. But the brainstem looks to what? For satisfaction. Or when it's not satisfied, when it's feeling pressure, and it doesn't know why, that is the pressure. Your brain hates the boss. Not because the boss is beating you up. If the boss came in every day with a whip and hit you, your reptilian brain, your instinctive brain would understand. But you come to work, the boss does not hit you, nobody hits you, it's a sitting down office job. So what is the brainstem? What does the instinctive brain know from going on? It's just there. And yet there's this pressure. 
Your cortex dislikes, hates the boss. Your brainstem doesn't hate the boss. It's not even aware of the boss, but it's aware of this pressure. It's aware of this human emotion. Of you, that there's something going on. We can call it anything you want to. I'm just calling it hate the boss. There could be other things. There could be sadness. I don't know whether you know it. Uh, zoologists used to, I assume they still do, but they classified all animals. One classification was whether they were offensive or defensive. The old fight or flight syndrome, it was divided into there are animals who fight and animals who seek to escape. And that it's, there's no doubt about it. No. Lands are offensive. Deers are defensive. Deers do not fight. They either run or they're dead men. Lions do not run. Lions fight. You corner a lion, he'll fight you. You corner a deer, you'll probably have a heart attack. I mean, if you literally corner it, it can't run. Are you aware of the fact that man is classified as a flight animal? Uh, I have read there are zoologists who swear that aggression is foreign to man. That the idea that men are aggressive, even some men here and there, and except if you're going to take into account, uh, really, very limited anomalies here and there, but there, there's a zoological view, a scientific view, that humans, mankind, is strictly an off a defensive animal. And in a sense, from a view, it makes sense. I've pointed out in other ways in the past, but... We're certainly not strong as many animals, blah, blah, blah. But the point is that zoologically, physiologically, a human, the first thing that they will seek to do, an ordinary human, is to flee from a dangerous situation. And that plus us having, being able to use abstract thought and call upon memory of past experience, we're able to turn our ability to flee, our propensity to flee, we've been able to turn it into an artificial world Wherein, as I point out, we are so protected that we never feel threatened. It's a foreign fear. And we do it in burglar bars, houses, move around civilized people, move into areas wherein no one is a threat. But the whole idea of civilization, in a sense, is a cocoon, is an environment the secondary world, but civilization itself is an environment wherein you could say there is minimal, hopefully none, that's the aim, is no threat to the instinctive brain. That is that no one feels threatened. That's civilization. That's a civilized milieu. It's where you're there and you never feel threatened. You don't feel like anyone's going to rob you. You don't feel like someone's going to attack your wife, your mate. You don't feel like the Someone's going to, well, that about covers it. Take away your food. Take possession of your house. But I say if you can feel it, because we all do, one way or the other. You just don't probably think about it anymore. Well, as I said, humans do not really give it any straightforward attention. There is pressure going on. But it's no longer the pressure to go out and find food. It's not the pressure that you feel is today I may have to fight a saber-toothed tiger. And if not, I'll probably have to fight, my, fight off my neighbors if I find something to eat and they see it. There's simply not that kind of pressure. So where is the pressure? 
And the idea, as I started to say, that man is in conflict with himself could be put very directly on this basis of this model that the conflict comes between the old instinctive reptilian brain and the newer conscious mammalian brain. That they speak two different languages. The reptilian brain, in one sense, if you can see it, is completely, really completely out of touch with the artificial world. The reptilian brain, think about it. Your instinctive brain cannot drive a car. The body can finally, through habit, learn to drive it. But you've got to be conscious. You can't drive a car by instinct. You have to be conscious. If you can see it, I'm not going to stay on this anymore, but if you can see it in a certain way, I say, I can see it, that our instinctive brain almost has no contact with the natural world anymore. Sex, obviously. But again, I don't mean to pick on anybody. We all seem to be victim of it. But you're not totally in touch, the instinctive brain, with sex. If you're having sex with somebody and you're thinking about anything other than what you're doing. And, of course, eating. It's obviously eating really more than sex, I guess, individually, but either one, that you're in touch. But do you, do you eat and do none but eat when you eat? I doubt it. But other than those two things, and sleeping, I guess, but other than those two things, what contact do people like us, do our instinctive brains have with the natural world? I know some of you garden. Think about what an attractive hobby that is. That many people are prone to it, really drawn to it, seriously. Puttering around, not growing necessarily food to eat. At any rate, the instinctive brain in us, I say if you can find it yourself, I'm just calling it pressure, since that's a psychologically acceptable term, is suffering pressure, and it doesn't know why. Because cultural pressures, the pressures of acting in a moral way, the pressure of acting in a way that is acceptable by your society, has absolutely no meaning whatsoever to our instincts. I ask you to consider again from last time, what goes on in the conscious mind continually when you're doing nothing in particular? I said that I thought about it driving today. You know, your sense of I, I thought about it this way I never had before, that at any given moment, your sense of I could either be lost down into the gyrus and sulcus of the brains, the, that's the convolutions, the folds, and then the furrows in the brain, you know, that is the cortex. You've seen at least photographs. So this big old water stuff all folded up, smooshed up together right there in the top of the head where the two hemispheres are. You can either be down in there lost, which is to be lost in thought, down those nooks and crannies. If you don't like gyrus and sulcus, 
the nooks and the crannies of the cortex. Or you could be around, if you have seen pictures of it enough, the brainstem itself, it bulges out a little bit when it gets up to the end. But it's compared to the cor cortex, it's a pretty straightforward, streamlined, unadorned little structure. So I was driving along and it hit me that you could be in one or two places and then this hit me, this phrase. What are my instincts saying? Right that second, I was driving. Because I already thought I was going to talk to you about something on the basis nobody seemed to be particularly taken by this. I find great meaning in the fact you don't drive by instinct. Instinct can't drive. And don't let yourself get fooled. It's one of the things that we learn to do, obviously. And so you can say, well, you certainly have to learn in the cortex. You have to learn in the conscious mind how to drive. But then with enough experience, you can do it without thinking about it. Yeah. But you can't do it instinctively. Try it. Well, some of you here laughed. I don't know exactly why you laughed, but I laughed when I was out there. If any of you are frightened, you can't do it. But while you're driving home tonight, try it. The way I would suggest is just try it. Think about well, what if right now I was just a, an animal driving a car and I did not have thoughts. You know? If so, you would be constantly looking all around. Because if your reptilian brain, if your instinctive brain could suddenly take on some sort of consciousness, I'm you know, having to make all this up, it would be such a surprise. Here it is. So I'm saying that world of the automobile, that highway, is totally foreign to the instinctive brain. As far as I see, it can never be otherwise. The instinctive brain would never become accustomed to it. Never. All right? You've got a snake, an alligator. No matter how many times you walk up to this snake and go, doesn't it react? Even though we're not all experts, wouldn't you imagine? I'm sure it's true. A snake will never, as we would call it, finally get accustomed to you coming up and going, boo, and stomping your feet, that one day finally the snake will go, ah, shit, it's just him. I don't think so. It doesn't have a choice. Literally, it has no choice. It is wired up to certain movements, certain, an alligator, anything just certain things happen and it reacts. It has no choice. It's laughable to talk about a choice. And it doesn't become accustomed to it. I say to you that our instinctive brain in all of us, no matter what your IQ is, if you were down to the instinctive reptilian brain and there it is driving, so that's what I tried to do. And I thought, what if I could be, if I could make my reptilian brain sort of conscious right now and instead of me thinking all this, that suddenly my me right this second, was down in my brainstem, and I could cut off the cortex, and here I am. I'm doing 80 miles an hour. The tractor trailers on both sides, front and the rear of me, people swerving in and out, and suddenly my alligator brain, I was there, and here I am. 80 miles an hour in a small Porsche surrounded by these behemoths 
what the hell? And I thought to myself, I went, what are my instincts saying? As I do almost every day, to me, I could make a whole new metaphysical system. Elaborate, complex courses to take. Years of study. What are my instincts saying? Because if you could answer that, you're awake, since there is no answer. If something is crude and poison, well, if something as crude and mundane as alcohol can literally put consciousness to sleep, just put it to sleep. To where you, you or anybody else, the you that is you, is not there. As I said, and even that strange condition, if you didn't get the point of it, the strange condition wherein you didn't actually pass out yet. The alcohol, because eventually when the alcohol gets to a certain saturation point in the brainstem, I didn't point it out in case you didn't figure, that's when you do literally pass out. And as I assume you all know, you get past a certain point and it get into the brainstem is what it amounts to and it's deadly. It's not at all hard to die from alcohol poisoning. But first, of course, you pass out. That is, first, it totally shuts off the cortex. But you keep going, and if it shuts down the brainstem, you're a dead man. Because if you do that, you have shut down respiration to start with. You just quit breathing. You don't decide to. If you put the brainstem, the reptilian brain, to sleep through alcohol... You're dead. But at any rate, the situation I was describing, wherein people can get so drunk that they suddenly are somebody else. The point is, they have ceased to be anybody, if I didn't make it clear enough. And it's not some subconscious thing. The guy suddenly turns on his wife. You know, I've hated you. I'm in love with you, you know, so-and-so down the street. And the next day she said, you know, she says, I'm leaving you, and that's her, and he says, why? You know, what you said last night, what I say? And even, I've seen this happen. If he says, well, I'm so drunk, I don't remember. You can't hold me responsible. She said, well, yeah, you say that now. But it's obvious last night that alcohol loosened your tongue. In fact, if she was hip enough, I guess she would shake, quote Shakespeare. He had something about, wasn't it him? It was him or Rumi? Can't remember whether it's an English hack <laughs> or a Persian mystic. But about wine giveth to the tongue truth. Well, I don't lie to you. you know, give a man a couple of drinks and he'll tell you the truth. I, know, I tell of a better one than Rumi or Shakespeare, but I don't guess any of you guys know it was Pygmy Markham. <laughs> He'd been away on a trip. And he thought his wife had been fooling around and went to his next door neighbor. And he said, I brought you back on a trip a fifth. So he poured out a drink and he kept saying, have a drink, have a drink. He said, have you seen my wife? The guy said, no, I ain't seen her. He says, you've been fooling around. You've seen her do anything. He says, I ain't seen her do anything. He says, here, have another drink. It goes on and on. It turns out he brought him two fills. But that's the same thing because he finally said, drink my whiskey and tell me the truth. All right. Anyway, back to my story. A woman, if it's between a man and a woman, can say, well, it's obvious that, you know, whiskey made you tell the truth. You know, you told me that you would, you know, were no longer in love with me and one, you know, my sister or a woman down the street. I'm just simply pointing out. I'm not taking sides. I'm the, 
the reality of those kind of situations, you understand, is not the point. I am saying it's not that you're another person. The situation I'm describing, or typically the one I have in mind, it's not that you're another person. You cease to be a person is the point. So even though you cannot physiologically separate, or you, well, you shouldn't and do great damage, as I said, but to separate, we can't really talk about se the brain stem or the old instinctive brain and the conscious brain to speak of them as being discreetly, operationally discreet entities, separate entities. Still, I'm saying with something as crude as alcohol, you can spend a couple of bucks and pour alcohol in somebody if they'll participate, and you can see their cortex, their mammalian brain, in a sense, you can see them undo whatever they figured it is, 10 million years worth of evolution in two or three hours, and the person went back to being an alligator. Again, I can't explain how he talks, <laughs> if you call it talking. But the point is, you know, you understand, we know that people can, quote, become another person. Yeah, they became an alligator. They ceased to be a human in that little kind of gray area, that twilight zone, just before they're actually passing out physically, that they can still talk. They are not talking to cortex. I don't know. It's just, it's, so to speak, dying gas, I guess. But you have shut off somebody's personality. You have shut off consciousness. And there it is. It's not a metaphysical theory. There, at one level, in fact, I don't know what you want to call it, a deeper level, but it, there is the reality, in our sense, of somebody asleep. Forget the drunken part. I don't know where you hear me. There is somebody asleep. You have seen, if you were sitting there and let somebody get that drunk and it happened, as I described, then over a period of a couple of hours, you saw not just what physiologically happened, but you saw in a mystical sense, if you know what I'm saying, you saw somebody go to sleep. Then I ask you to consider, what is it? Here we are sober, doing our best, trying to stay alert, trying to be awake, enlightened, and liberated. What are your instincts saying? And who are you? Who is the person who gets so drunk that you suddenly don't even recognize what they're saying? And it's your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, girlfriend. Who is that talking? Is it the brainstem? Can the brainstem talk? Is it the instinctive brain? Who is it right now? Now back to us. Sober, as alert as you can be. Here you are listening to me, so we assume on the surface you're trying to do something. But who are you right now? Are you your thoughts? Are you your instincts? An alligator of many questions. That concludes this talk. Be sure to visit us at jancox.com where you can search through 3,000 talks for topics of interest or just leave us a message.